Welcome to Revealed Truth, the audio outreach ministry of Moores Creek Baptist Church. I am Pastor Roger Barnes, and I invite you now to join me as we open the Bible, God's Revealed Truth. John eleven forty four. if you got your Bible. How many of you know the name Cooper Ellington? Amen. That young man changed my life radically. And uh, back last summer, the last week of July... The Lord laid this particular text on my heart, and I began working through and digging into the Scriptures. One verse, little did I know that this particular week that I would prepare uh, this sermon that Cooper, early on Sunday morning, on July the 29th, would go home to be with the Lord. And a week later, when I would finally preach this sermon in my church, it would be a life-changing moment for me. This is the text that I used at Cooper's funeral uh, as well. So I just want to read one verse to you by way of introduction, and then we're going to look at the whole story. And you've heard this story before, but you've probably not heard the rest of the story. In fact, most of the time, when you look at John 11 and you see the story, the miracle of Lazarus being raised from the dead, normally the preacher cuts the text off before you even get to this verse. So let's look together. John 11 Verse 44, and the Bible said, and he that was dead, of course, this is Lazarus, came forth. Yet he was bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with the napkin. Jesus said unto them, that is, those that were gathered, those that were witnessing this miracle, those that had come to either complain because Jesus hadn't showed up in time, or to see what he was going to do now, Jesus turned to those that were standing around and simply said, Loose him and let him go. There may be someone in the room tonight, or or maybe some of your family or someone that you know that would be much like Lazarus, risen from the dead. Spiritually, they've been born again, but they desperately need to be loosed. And let go. Amen? Amen? Let's look together. Pastor, would you pray for us? preacher, I want to give you the exegesis. That is, we look at the text and we kind of break it apart. How many of you have ever been to Subway in order to sub? All right, we're going to do it the backwards way. When you go and order a sub, you begin giving them the ingredients and they slap it together, close the top and give you a bill. Well, imagine if you will, they give you the sub and you take the lid off and then you begin pulling every part. You pull the condiments off, you pull the meat off, the cheese off. What's your favorite kind of cheese? 
Cheddar, that's good. Most kids say, I don't know, yellow. I like provolone myself. But we pull every part out and then we see what's there. Well, whenever you look at a text, it's important that you don't just look at it from like a thousand feet, but you dig into it and you pull it apart and you see what's there. So let me just give you a couple of things. The first 43 verses, I'm going to give you the synopsis really, really quick for time's sake. Number one, there was a dilemma. Now here's what's going on. There were no greater friends to the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. You are an angel. I dug in some insulation last week and half of it's still in me. All right. There was a dilemma. Jesus had a great friend. His name was Lazarus. They're his two sisters, Mary and Martha. You remember the story and they, they fellowshiped together. They had meals together. When Jesus was in town, he stayed at their home. They were family to him. And Lazarus got very, very sick. And Martha sent word, Jesus, come quick. Preacher, you ever got one of those calls? <laughs> I get them all the time. I got one on the way down here that a gentleman had just um, unexpectedly passed away. Preacher, we need you. Come quick. There was a dilemma. Lazarus was on his deathbed. He had the death rattle. His eyes were sinking fast. Time was of the essence. There was a dilemma. Number two, there was a desire. Martha said, send for Jesus. Jesus, we need you. Jesus, come quick. That was the desire of their heart. I mean, after all, who could stop this terrible process of death? Only Jesus. He must be called for. We want Jesus to be here. There was a desire. <laughs> Number three, there was a delay. Did you know that Jesus doesn't always work on our timetable? Martha said, we need you and we need you now. Drop whatever you're doing and come quick. Jesus said, fellas, just hold up. The disciples didn't understand. And they said, Jesus, maybe you didn't understand what we're talking about. It's not just anybody, but it is Lazarus, your dear friend. It is the brother of Mary and Martha. You know what they mean to you. And we thought that you got this What's going on? Jesus said, it's not time to go yet. And he would wait for another two, now three days. Delayed. Hmm, that's not making any sense. So there's a dilemma, there's a desire, there's a delay. Next, there's a whole lot of drama. How many of y'all like drama? Now some of y'all lying. How many of you have a Facebook account? Now, I want to just tell you, I don't have Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, I don't know how to Snapchat. By the way, did you know that YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook this week were bought out by this one company, and they're going to put them all together and call it U-Twit-Face. Anyway, <laughs> I had him, boy. I mean to tell you. Here's the fact, y'all. I believe that people like a little drama. If you have a Facebook account, there's nothing wrong with that. You're not going to bust tail open for that. But I do believe people kind of like know what's going on in other people's lives. In fact, I would submit to you, there are people in our community that know more about my life than I know about my life. In fact, some of the things they know about my life aren't even true. i got to tell you something. i got to tell you something. Honest to goodness truth. i got a little white Jeep out there. Y'all seen it? It's a pretty little thing. It is the cheapest Jeep you can buy. I flew all the way to Maryland to get it. It's the base price when a Jeep only costs $23,000 brand new if you don't add anything to it. Do you know that? That's about 45 you add some things to it. But you can buy one for $23,000. I'll tell you the story. Flew all the way up to Maryland, got me a buddy pass. It was a free ticket. Flew up there and drove it back. It's a pretty little old Jeep, as cute as it can be. And then I went on eBay and I ordered me some $6 Rubicon stickers. 
They come in the mail and I went off and I cleaned up my fender and I stuck those Rubicon stickers on. And I want to tell you, before the end of the day, it was all over town. We are paying the preacher too much. He's done bought himself a Rubicon Jeep. People like drama. So here's the drama in the story. Martha finally saw Jesus coming. Now at this time, Lazarus is gone. He's dead. It's too late. Let's make no bones about it. Martha was furious. She was so hurt that her hurt had turned into anger. Do you know that? That hurt left alone will turn into anger. So she went up to Jesus and literally got in his face and said, Where have you been? Did you not get our message that Lazarus, the man that we thought was your friend, was dying, and yet you chose to delay, you chose to wait? What's going on? And and there was so much drama there. And I think it's a beautiful picture that Jesus never lashed out. He understood her pain. He understood her hurt. I was excited to see Tim here tonight, and I don't even know Tim, but I prayed for him this morning. Every person in this room is going through different things in their life. We don't understand. My brother, I want to tell you, when, when we went to Duke and the doctors came out with all of these lab results and said, we don't know how to tell you this, but your son has uh, this, this rare form of rheumatoid arthritis that affects every joint in his body. He'll never be able to run and play and do sports and all the things like every other kid. I began crying out, God, why? What have I done wrong to deserve this? We get caught up in that drama. So Martha was just up in Jesus' face, but he never lashed out. And then Mary kind of got drawn into this drama. Jesus said, where's Mary? Martha said, she's still back at the house. Take me to her. And when Jesus got near to the house, they ran in and said, Mary, he's here. By the way, do you know what the worst four-letter word you can never be called is? Kids, I want you to cover up your ears like this. Cover it up. All right, I'll cover his up. He ain't paying any attention. All right, are you ready? I like that shirt. Can I borrow it sometime? All right, here we go. The worst four-letter word you can never be called. You ready? That. I'm telling you, if they say about Roger, that preacher, it ain't good. All right? That husband of mine, it ain't good. I guarantee you, Martha walked in that house and said, that so-called friend of ours is finally here. Mary met him at the door. Now, she didn't have the same indignant nature, but she, again, said the same thing to Jesus in a different tone. She said, Lord, I don't understand. Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would still be alive. Lord, I told everybody that that you were going to be here and and everything was going to be okay. I I told everybody that, that my brother couldn't die because he knew you, Jesus. And then there was a third person that got caught up in the drama. There was Martha. There was Mary. And you know who else got caught up in the drama? Jesus did. What did he do? He wept. Now, I'm not going to give you all the preacher tales of why Jesus wept. Maybe Jesus knew where Lazarus was and where he was fixing to bring him from, and that just broke his heart. I don't know. You can't back that up with Scripture. I just believe Jesus so hurt for people that he loved that as human as he was, he wept. Because he was 100% human and 100% divine. So he wept. May I say to you, when you and I go through things and our hearts are breaking, we have a Father whose heart breaks for us too. 
Hardest thing you'll ever do on planet earth is raise children. And I don't know, my oldest one's 22, but I do believe this. The older they get, the harder it gets. And no matter how mad I get at them, no matter how wrong they can be at times, my heart breaks for them. And I weep with them when they weep. But there's one more point before we get to my message. There was a deliverance. Jesus said, where have you laid him? Take me to the site. Martha has not gotten over herself yet. So she said, Jesus, we can't go there. There's no need. Maybe you didn't hear me the first time, but he's now been dead for not one, not two, but now three days heading on to four. Had this sweet friend, her name's Karen Peck, and she wrote a song about it and said he's four days late. So they get to the tomb, and Jesus said, roll that stone away. Martha said, no, don't you do it. She spoke King James, so she said this, he stinketh. What it says right there in the Bible, he stinketh. So think about this. Jesus is telling them to do something. And she says, no, don't do it. And Jesus begins to explain to her that he has power over death. And she has a theological debate with Jesus. She starts talking about the resurrection. And one of these days, yes, my brother's going to come forth. But right now, there's nothing you can do. Leave that stone where it is. And Jesus is saying, if only you knew what is fixing to happen. Jesus said, it'll be all right, roll the stone away. Can you imagine that moment of anticipation? And can you imagine, just, just pause that story for a moment. Jesus, with the flurry of emotions, there are tears still uh, coming down his cheek. His, his cloak is now soiled with his own tears and he's thinking because it's only going to be a short period of time that there will be others gathered around another grave wondering when the stone is rolled away what's getting ready to happen and Jesus realized because of his death and his victory over his grave that he's getting ready to be able to give deliverance and victory over yet another pretty cool so Jesus is standing there. The stones rolled away. Can you imagine? Now, I don't know what Martha was doing. I don't mean to, to sort of paint her into a bad light. She's just human and she loved her brother and we get that. But every eye is now focused on this tomb. It's just a cave with a stone that's been rolled over. I guarantee you, some old boy was probably there going, I mean, because she's just said he stinketh. And they're wondering, what are we getting ready to witness? And here's what Jesus does. He says, Lazarus, come forth. Now, it's important you get that. Two things. One, the conversation was initiated by Jesus and not Lazarus. Lazarus won't in there going, let me out of here, let me out of here. Because the fact of the matter is, you and I just can't decide one day, you know what, today is the day, I think I feel good about it, I think I'm going to get saved. The Bible said that we cannot get saved unless the sweet presence of God, the Holy Spirit draws us, beckons us, as the old preacher used to say, God has to finger around in that heart first before He can save that soul. So there's a conversation that begins, and not only do we see that, but we see it is a personal conversation. 
Lazarus could have said, or or rather Jesus could have said, come forth and every dead person who had ever died and ever been buried instantly would have bust out of their graves. So he specifically called him by name. The Rochester sing a song, he knows my name. When I was an eight-year-old little boy, I didn't think anybody knew me and anybody loved me. But a Christian school teacher showed me the plan of salvation. And I heard just as clear as old Lazarus did so long ago, Cameron, come forth. He knows you by name. He calls you by name. And he saves you by name. So what did the deliverance look like? Every eye is on the mouth of that little cave. And here comes this figure. Now, when they buried somebody back then, they buried them good. The best way I can describe it is those old horror films where they show the mummies completely wrapped in burial clothes. And here he comes. Is he alive? Everybody give me one of these. He's alive. But is he free? No. Does he have any liberty? No. No. So tonight I want to share two things with you very quickly. Now that we've got the introduction covered, I want to give you two things. And it's based on six words that can radically change your life as a believer, if you will but let it. Jesus looked at this figure who had just come from the cave, and he looked at those standing around, and he said, Loose him and let him go. This lets us know that there was some unfinished business to be done. Now, Jesus had brought him from death to life, from darkness to light. Lazarus was alive. His heart was now beating. Blood was once again flowing through his veins. His mind was now working. His lungs were now breathing. But there was yet a problem. Two things to consider tonight, and I'll let you go home because I'm excited to get home because one of our dear saints of God made me a egg custard pie, and it's at home waiting on me. You're welcome to come to White Lake for a small piece if you would like. Number one, what Christ looses us from. And then we're going to look, number two, at what Christ looses us for. I'll be brief, but I want to give you this, so don't miss it. Number one, what Christ looses us from. When we see Lazarus wrapped in these grave clothes, it is a picture of so many people today that have been born again, but they're still living a life of bondage. Number one, we are bound by those things that defile us. The bondage that defiles us. What is this? It's sin. Now think about this. The Bible says this, that we have been born again, that we've been set free, that we've been freed from the darkness and freed from the penalty of sin. And why should we continue to live any longer therein? Paul says, God forbid that we do. So think about this. When it comes to the subject of sin, how can sin still defile me, even though I've been saved from it. I, I've been, you know, my sin debt has been eradicated. It's I've been washed. I've been made clean. So how can sin still have power over me? Two ways. Number one, we continue to dwell in sin. We continue to dwell in sin. Now, it's Sunday night in Moores Creek. And as far as I know, there's probably nobody in this room that's robbed a liquor store this week. Probably nobody that's committed a murder this week. Probably nobody that's committed a crime that you're going to go to jail this week. I don't know, maybe, but probably not. 
But there is still sin in our life that we have not fully let go of. We're still dwelling in it. There's that pet sin that we continue. And by the way, everybody else's sin seems far more serious than anybody else's. I remember the story of the dear lady, and she loved a little dip of snuff. A man, go visit her, and she'd always have a little coming down the side of her, you know, some of y'all had a grandma like that. One Sunday, the preacher got to preaching on smoking, and he said, Brothers and sisters, I want to tell you, smoking's a sin. And this little lady said, Amen, preacher. And he got going again, and he said, I just don't believe people ought to smoke him cigarettes. Amen, preacher. She said, just kept going on and on. At the end of the service, that little old lady walked out and shook the preacher's hand and said, That was one of the best messages I've ever heard you preach. He said, Now, sister, you and I both know that you like a little dip of snuff. She said, that's right, preacher. I think it'd be a sin to burn up anything that tastes that good. You know, <laughs> sin always looks different when it's somebody else's or when it's ours. Is there anything in our life tonight that we would say we are still dwelling in this sin? It could be gossip. It could be some drama that God wouldn't be pleased with. It could be habitual sin. It could be a sin of unforgiveness. There's all kinds of things. This is not my point to stand up here tonight and try to convict you of your sin simply to say, listen, is there anything between you and God that you might say, this is something that's still sin? So I'm dwelling in sin. Oh, here's another point, and that is when we dwell on sin. The Bible said if we've been set free by the Lord Jesus Christ, we are free indeed. Not only are we eternally free from that sin, he desires for us to be internally free from that sin. What does that mean? It means maybe we've got something in our past and, and maybe it was a relationship that didn't work out like we wanted. Um, maybe we've been through something in our life. or and, and listen, it might have been when we were 15 years old or 50 years old, but we cannot turn it loose. We continue to dwell in it. By the way, that's the M.O. of the enemy. He wants to constantly remind you of your past failures over and over and over. So it, it's burdening me. It's, it's, it's literally defiling me because I dwell on it. And it may not be just your sin. It may be somebody else's. Well, so-and-so hurt me. They said something about me. They, they took something from me. And we're dwelling on the sin of another person and it's defiling us. So number one, those things that defile us. Number two, the burdens that devour us. I'll move quickly because time's nearly up. The burdens that devour us. Two things. One, those things that have a grip on us. Now, I don't know many people in this room tonight, but there may be something that's got a grip on you. And it's just like you've been screaming out, turn loose of me, but it won't. Once and for all, isn't it wonderful to know that the very voice of the Lord Jesus Christ can say, be loosed and let go. It can be an addiction. It can be some habit. It can be a lifestyle, whatever it might be. But there's something that has a grip on us. Number two, how about those things that we have a grip on? Now, I'm going to tell you, I pastored the same church for 18 years. You've never known a more controlling pastor than me. Now, I did it out of love. And I believe with all of my heart that anything that went on in that church, if I did it, it would be done better than anybody else could do it. I'm not being arrogant. That's just how I felt. Now, you all might not understand that. Maybe you do. But I felt like if, if I poured the communion cups, they'd be filled just to the right point. Not too little, not too much. I felt like if I opened the doors, they'd be open just right. 
If I set the heat and air, they'd be set just right. If I striped the parking lot, it'd be just the right number of spots. I mean, y'all, I had a problem. And for 18 years, it drove me and nearly everybody else crazy. By the time I left that church, we had 38 people on staff. We'd had over 700 additions in those 18 years. And I still was the first one there and the last one to leave. Still turned on every light, set every heat and air unit. I mean everything there was. My secretary one time said, why don't you just do the bulletin since I'm going to do it once and then you're going to fix it and change it and all this and then do it again. Just save me the trouble of doing it the first time. I want to tell you, there are people in this room tonight that if you admit it, you'd say, I've got to have a grip on everything. I wanted my children to be raised and I wanted them to come up and be the little robots that I intended for them to be. Do everything just like I wanted them to be. Do you know what I've, I've learned? I was a little boy. I was a neat freak. I wanted everything in my room just so I'm the only little boy that for my birthday had asked my mom and daddy to buy me a bottle of Pledge so I could polish my furniture in my bedroom. Do you know what? I've got four children. They're slobs, every one of them. But I wanted to control them and make them into the perfect little children that I thought they ought to be. Listen, I want to tell you tonight, Some of us need to be delivered from having to control everything. Those things that have a grip on us. Secondly, those things that we have a grip on. Let me move very, very quickly. The third thing. Not only the bondage that defiles us, the burdens that devour us. Number three, the brokenness that defeats us. The brokenness that defeats us. Hurt, hate, hardness of heart. Martha could not see what Christ was up to. Because her hurt was so magnified. When she looked at Jesus, she did not see the deliverer. She saw, I'm sorry, am I keeping you up? Bless your sweetheart. She's cute. Um, I'm sorry, I got got ADHD and I don't take meds anymore because they made me sleepy. It's a true story. All right, here we go. When she saw Jesus, she did not see the deliverer. I didn't mean to embarrass you. I bring my young one night and make him sit with you. All right, and that'll embarrass you. She didn't see the deliverer. I wish y'all quit interrupt me. I'll get done. You know what she saw? She saw the great disappointer. Now, y'all think about that. There are people in here tonight, and God's disappointed you. Now, that might sound crazy from a preacher. But God's disappointed me a few times, and please understand the heart that this is being given. I'm not being blasphemous or disrespectful in any way. But when God doesn't answer our prayers the way we wanted Him to and the way we hoped He would, we get hurt. There are ladies in this room you still wish, or you wish your husband could still be with you, but he's not. Their husband's who wished one more time they could put their arms around their wife here in this church meeting house. Don't let that bind you. Don't let that burden you in such a way that you're no longer able to see the face of the deliverer, but rather you see the face of the disappointer. The things that Christ looses us from, we can make a list and it could go on all night. But I want to close with my second point. And that is, what does Christ loose us and let us go and free us for? He doesn't just save us so that we can go to heaven when we die. Now, if that was it, that would be a great deal for us. 
But He wants to give us freedom and He wants us to give us liberty. But there's a specific purpose for that. Now now see it as I was preparing this message. And again, what a week this was. I, I'm working through this message and studying. And then Reed calls me and tells me about Cooper. And I'm just overwhelmed. And, and I finally I come to the point and I'm looking and I'm saying, God, I understand that there's something in this one verse that you lose Lazarus for. And you desire to lose me for. And he said, well, just look at the verse. It's right there. And it is. Here we go. You ready? What specifically did Jesus say? What parts did Jesus specifically say to loose Lazarus? Let me give them to you. Number one, loose his hands. Now, what does that mean? I know our time's about up. If you give me just a couple more minutes, I'll close in. I'll slide in head first home, and we'll be out of here. You ready? His hands. Your hands are what you serve the Lord with. Whether you're out building a ramp, putting on a roof, baking a cake, whatever it is, you use your hands to serve the Lord. Now think about this. When we are bound and we are burdened and we are just overwhelmed and we're still wrapped in those grave clothes of discouragement and hurt and pain, we're not going to be out serving the Lord and serving others. There are folks that that become so just uh, broken and burdened that they're not doing anything for the Lord. But when He looses us, all of a sudden we have a desire to go, I want to be involved. I want to volunteer. Pastor, what can I do? How can I get involved? But so many times when we become so overwhelmed by our situation and circumstances, we're no good to anybody else. We're not going to sign up to serve. We're just going to sign up to sulk. Loose his hands so that he might serve me. Number two, loose his feet. Now, your hands is what we do our work with. But what about our feet? So I started looking at the Scripture, and I realized that the Bible says, how beautiful are the feet of those that go and take good news to those in need. The Bible talks about the whole armor of God, and it talks about you know the helmet of salvation all the way down. And when you get to the feet, the Bible says, put on the feet that are shod with the preparation of the gospel. So with our feet, we go and we witness. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. There are days that I am a good witness for the Lord. And there are days I am not such a good witness for the Lord. And when I look at those days, the difference is when I feel bound and discouraged and broken and burdened, I'm not giving a word of witness. I'm not speaking to that person in the elevator and sharing the gospel. Boy, you're talking about a captive audience. That door closes and you got them for at least a floor or two. I'm not looking forward to those evangelistic opportunities because I am burdened. I am bound. I'm not going to be witnessing. Oh, but I want to tell you, when I've been riding around in my Jeep with the top down, wind blowing through my hair, listening to those beautiful old songs of Zion, and I feel so free, and I feel so much liberty, and I feel so loosed and let go, I can't wait to stop somewhere and holler at the car next to me and tell somebody about Jesus, because when we're loosed and and let go, we are witnessing machines. But there's one more point. He said, loose his hands so he can work. Loose his feet so he can witness. But then we come to the most beautiful thing. 
He says, loose his face. Unwrap that burial garment from his face. Now I got to tell you, this one nearly stumped me. I dug and I prayed and I asked the Lord to show me. When he had the, the covering over his face and they, they took it away, what does this represent? Remember, his hands was work. His feet was witness. Ah, oh, but his face, that was his worship. Remember old Moses when he went up on the mountain? God gave him the ten, the, the, the ten Commandments, but He gave him something more. He gave him His presence. And Moses worshipped the Lord in such a way that Moses' face would radiate with the glory of God and would shine. And when he came down from the mountain, they said, Look at Moses. His face is shining with the glow from God. And Moses would have to veil his face because after being in the presence of God, his own face was so bright that it was blinding to everyone else we worship and we behold the glory of God and then we go and we radiate that glory to others that we come in contact with it was a Monday night um, four years ago something like that now a dear friend of mine up in Dunn North Carolina said hey Cameron we're having revival this week Bob Pittman's going to be there Maybe you'd come one night. I said, well, I got church Sunday night and Wednesday night. He said, I said, I'll come Monday or Tuesday. He said, that'd be great. So Monday, Monday was one of those hard days. I'd been to this hospital and that hospital and just done my thing and uh, kind of overwhelmed, burdened, broken, and just worn out. And I got home. My wife was fixing some supper, and it was beginning to rain, getting colder and getting dark. And I came home, and I said, I was going to go to revival tonight, but I'm just going to wait and go tomorrow night. Kicked off my shoes, turned on the sweetest sound whatever's been heard. Watch me some Andy Griffith, you know. And I thought, oh, this is just good. And I sat there and I tried to watch Andy Griffith and God just took me to the woodshed. I said, boy, all day I've told you you need to go to revival. I said, God, I'll go tomorrow night. He said, no, you'll go tonight if you know what's good for you. I finally got up, threw my shoes back on, headed out the door. And my wife said, honey, where are you going? I said, I'm going to revival. <laughs> I'm just being honest. Got in that little Fiat car I was driving at the time and I made that hour and something odd journey up the road and that old rain, I'm doing like this, deers flying by, bears, it was just awful. And I finally get up there to that great big old church and done, I sit in the parking lot and I think, what am I doing here? I'm in no mood for revival. I'm probably going to quench your spirit. God tries to do something. right? I'd be better off just to go on back home. And I sat there in my car and actually contemplated saying, well, God, I came, now I can go home. But I finally decided I would get out and I'd go. And I wanted to go in. I didn't want to be recognized. I didn't want nobody to call me up there to pray because I sure wasn't in the mood to pray in front of people that night. I mean, I'm being honest. And so I came and I creeped over here and I sat down toward the back. And I was kind of like, bless me if you can, God. And I sat there. People were greeting and talking. And finally, they began the service with the first song. The wisdoms were there that night. And they began singing. And I noticed this precious little hand waving to the heavens. And every bit of emotion within me flooded out. I took my phone out and I held it up and I clicked a picture of that little hand and I sent it to my wife and I said, I had no idea why I was supposed to be here tonight, but I think I know now. They sang a song or two and then they gave us an opportunity to stand and to, and, to, and to visit with one another and shake hands and hug necks and all that. 
And I darted out and I made a beeline down that aisle, took a left, and I got up in Cooper Ellington's face and I said, I don't know why, but God told me I was to come here tonight and I believe you're the reason. I don't know who you are, but I love you with all of my heart and I can't wait to hear more about your story. I'd spend the rest of that evening. Pastor Tom would call me up. I'd pray with him and we became best friends that night. There's not a day that goes by of my life, even the day that I don't pull up YouTube and watch my buddy Coop sing. And I just look into that face and I see what worship is all about. As I was sitting in the back right before I came in, I got a text from Reed Ellington said, praying for you, brother. Preach on. I love you. I want to tell you, a 17-year-old kid can stand and worship the Lord with tumors growing in his brain. A kid that could run, once run a six-minute mile can barely walk without assistance, but yet he's worshiping the Lord. Can stand up in front of seven or eight or seven or eight thousand and give God glory, then I don't have one excuse. I wonder tonight, have you truly been loosed and let go? Have you truly come to the point that your hands are ready to get back to work? Your feet ready to get back to witnessing and your face ready to behold His glory and begin worshiping once again. Last story and we'll go home. A little boy, anybody want to name, know his name? What was his name? Johnny, y'all remember y'all good. Johnny was walking down the street of his small hometown. Kind of one of those days everything seemed kind of sad and lonely and quiet till he came upon this one tree and he looked up and in that tree there were four little songbirds and they were fluttering around and, and jumping from branch to branch and they were singing to the top of their little bird lungs and just chirping away and, and Johnny watched them for a few minutes and they brought him great joy and Johnny said, you know I'd like to have those birds for my very own. I'd like to take them home and every morning they could sing me awake and every night they could sing me to sleep. So Johnny went back to his house. He found the old bird cage, put some baling wire around it, kind of made it where it would hold those birds in. And he went back and he climbed up in that tree and he enticed those birds until finally all four were in that cage. Johnny was so excited so he took that cage and he placed it on the nightstand beside his bed. And sure enough that night they chirped away singing and singing as he fell asleep. The next morning he was so excited as he woke up and looked and those little birds are flying around that cage and I mean they're singing their songs and he's just so excited. He goes off to school, he comes back that night and there they are. But by about the second or third day he noticed something's wrong. These birds aren't singing quite as lively as they once were and they weren't really flying around, just a little motion here and there. A few more days passed. He thought, I'll give them some time. They're probably just adjusting to their new home. And, but after a week, those birds were lifeless, just standing there on the bottom of the cage. No longer singing, not even a chirp. Johnny looked and said, what's wrong with you? If you're not better by morning, I'm going to get rid of you. You're just worthless. By the next morning, they were even worse. So he took that cage 
but those lethargic little songbirds. And he began walking back down that same street. And as he walked along, the pastor of his local church met him and said, Johnny, how are you doing? Johnny said, not so good, preacher. Preacher said, well, Johnny, what do you have there? And he said, oh, just an old cage of birds. I don't know what's wrong with them. I think they're dying or something. I don't know what to do with them. The preacher said, oh, they look like fine birds to me, Johnny. Johnny, would you consider selling those birds in that little cage to me? Johnny said, preacher, I don't want to take your money. I can't take advantage of you. They're worthless. You don't want them, preacher, believe me. Preacher said, oh, no, Johnny, I'd love to have them. I tell you what, Johnny, I'll give you $100 for that bird cage and them four little birds. Johnny said, are you, are you serious, preacher? All right, preacher, if you want them that bad, you can have them. And, and, and the preacher pulled out that $100 bill and Johnny held it up, never held so much money. He gave the preacher that old bird cage and them worthless birds and he began running back to his house before the preacher changed his mind and he got about 100 feet away and he heard a familiar sound and he turned and looked and there were those birds flying back up into that tree that they once came from and they were flying from branch to branch and limb to limb singing louder and sweeter than they had ever sung before. And Johnny ran back and said, Preacher, now I don't understand what you're up to and I sure don't understand what they're up to. I mean, they were just lifeless sitting on the bottom of the cage no longer singing. And now look at them. Look at all the life. And the preacher said, Oh, Johnny, you've got to understand something, boy. He said, Those birds thought they were worthless just like you did. But then they heard that they were highly valued. They saw me buy them and purchase them with my own money. Oh, Johnny, but their song came back when I opened the door, when I loosed them, and when I let them go. Friend, can I tell you something tonight? You might feel worthless, but the King of kings and Lord of lords loved you so much that He was not willing to spare even his own life so that he might spare yours. But Jesus didn't just die to give you life eternal. He died to give you life abundant. He died to loose you and to, and to let you go and to free you from whatever burden and bondage and brokenness that you brought into this place tonight. Like Lazarus, maybe you need to hear the voice of Christ saying, come forth. Maybe you're, you're lost. Maybe you've never truly experienced the call of God to come out of darkness into the light from death to light. Tonight, my prayer is that the sweet Holy Spirit of God would speak to you individually, call out your name in a voice louder than any audible voice you've ever heard. And as you hear that voice, you would sprint from that place to receive the great life-changing gospel. But maybe... You've already experienced salvation in that you've heard that call and that you've stepped into that relationship of salvation, but yet you've never been loosed and let go. Maybe there have been times where those that bondage has been a little looser, a little tighter, but you know tonight without any doubt that you need to be loosed and let go. It can be life-changing. Cooper was buried on Wednesday. That next Sunday, I preached this message at the Lake Church. I traveled the 20 minutes over to Dublin 
where I'd pastored for 18 years. And as I began preaching this message, God just broke me. And I realized that if Cooper Ellington could live by faith and not by sight, so could I. At the end of that service, I asked those sweet folks that I'd called my family for nearly 20 years. I told them it was time for me to go. To step out in faith into uncharted territories of these revivals and pastoring the lake church and the camp and all of the things. And I want to tell you, August the 5th was that date. You talking about a freeing experience. I'm a different man, and I'm grateful for that. Now, i got a long way still to go. But I wonder tonight if this might be one of those moments in your life. I'm not going to try to manipulate you. I'm not going to tug at your emotions. I just want to ask you, have you been loosed from all that bondage, all that brokenness? Are you at the point tonight where your hands are busy working, your feet are busy witnessing, and your face is busy worshiping? Like them little songbirds, is there a song in your heart? Is there freedom in your life? Thank you for joining us here at Revealed Truth. I would like to personally invite you to visit with us at Morris Creek Baptist Church. We're located at 3107 Union Chapel Road in Curry, North Carolina. Our Sunday school starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday mornings and is followed at 11 o'clock with our Sunday morning worship service. We also have a time of prayer and Bible study on Wednesday evenings at 7 o'clock. We look forward to seeing you soon.